Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. It's our privilege now to open the Holy Scriptures together, and we'll look, the Lord willing, this morning at the doctrine of the church in the book of Ephesians. I want to begin by reading from the second chapter, verses 18 to 22. Paul writes, For through him, that is, through Jesus Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We're living in a day in which there is significant confusion about the church. Even among professing Christian people, the question, what is the church supposed to be? What is its purpose? How is it supposed to function? And there are ideas aplenty in answer to that question. Some think the church is to be like a shopping mall in which there's something for everybody. The consumer mentality can be fed by the church. If you like Starbucks coffee or you like uh, games and activities, then certainly there's plenty to meet everyone's needs, that the church exists to meet human need. Others today think that the church is perhaps a relic of the ancient past, like a museum in which you don't get involved, but it's a good place to visit if you're interested in the past, in history. Even many primitive Baptists today, I suspect, forget what the church is supposed to be, what its purpose is. It's easy to just go through the motions from Sunday to Sunday to say, well, it's church day. Let's go sing a little, have prayer, listen to a sermon, and go home. We've been to church, but yet we don't really think like we should about the significance of what we're doing. I think that that's possible. I know that's possible because I've done it many times. But the book of Ephesians gives us a very robust doctrine of the church. Now, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is a compound of two Greek words. Ek means out of. Kaleo is the root of the word, which means to call. And so ekklesia is, speaks of the called out. What is the church? It is God's people who have been called out of this world to devote themselves to living in his kingdom. That's the church. And what I want us to do this morning is to look at this major theme in the book of Ephesians. Ecclesiology in Ephesians, or the doctrine of the church, if you please, in this letter. And I want us to answer these questions. What is the nature of the church? What is it supposed to be? And what is its purpose? And the first thing that I want to notice with you is that uh, there are three metaphors in the book of Ephesians concerning the nature of the church. First, in chapter 2, the passage I read before you, the church is compared to a building. A building. 
Secondly, a bride in chapter 5. You can remember these by B words. What is the church supposed to be? It's God's building. It is Christ's bride, chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, and also again in chapter 4, the church is Christ's body. So it's a building, it's a bride, and it's a body. Let's draw a few lessons from this thought that the church is God's building. Like a building, the church is God's special and personal project in the world. I know we have a number of people in our congregation here who've been involved at various levels of construction in the past, whether it's excavation and site work or even the actual laying of a foundation and the construction of a building, a house, or some other structure, and you have significant experience in that area. And it's always exciting, isn't it, to have a building project? I'll tell you the church is the most important construction project in the world. And it's God's building project. The church is his building. Interestingly, the materials with which he builds are not wood and mortar, but they are living stones. You know, when we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, You also as lively stones are being built up a spiritual house unto the Lord. The passage I just read in chapter 2 of Ephesians says, in whom all the building fitly framed together. It's wonderful when you start to see an idea come to fruition, when the building is framed up. It's fitly framed together. Notice, it groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, says Ephesians 2.21. Now here's a building that is constantly in process. Here's a building that is growing. And that's the idea here, that the church is God's building project in the earth. It's his special project. You know, architecture was an art form in the Greco-Roman world, and particularly in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, and we've taken our text this morning from the book of Ephesians. This is Paul's letter to the church that was at Ephesus. And in Ephesus architecture was a form of art. The Ephesians were distinguished for their skill in building. And the buildings in Ephesus were known as the standard of beauty and precision. Well, the apostle draws on that connection, no doubt, in this passage when he says, God is building in this earth. And he says the foundation of this building in verse 20 is the apostles and the prophets. And we know that those first two offices, the apostles and the prophets in the church, were speaking or preaching gifts. That is, they were connected to the word of God. And they were the ones who received direct revelation, apostles and prophets, from the Lord. And that's where we get our New Testament. Now, I can preach and say I want to take my text from Ephesians or from Philippians or Colossians, because these are New Testament letters that have been pinned down for our benefit. But you know, when the church was first born, the infant church, they didn't have the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans or First and Second Peter. God was using these men 
to write these books. And where did they get their information? Well, they received it through direct revelation. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto them, but the Father which is in heaven. Paul says how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. That's in the very next chapter of Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 2, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So my point is that the apostles and the prophets were men that God gave his truth to. And through them, they have inscripturated that truth so that you and I today know the truths of the Christian faith that Jesus revealed to them the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Now, I want to say a building is never more stable than its what? Than its foundation. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 when he contrasted the house that was built on a rock with the house that is built on the sand. And although it may look the same on the outside, a house built on the sand, you know, may look to be as beautiful on the outside, the real test of that structure's strength is when the storm comes. And he says, when the winds blew and the waves beat upon it, the house that was built upon the rock stood fast. But the house that was built on the sand came crashing down. The foundation, therefore, on which a structure is erected is vitally important. Well, may I say the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built upon this rock of the revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. You remember Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus told Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, that is, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, you didn't learn that from other people, but God taught you that. And verily I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Notice, it's his building project. Who is responsible for building the church? Is it the pastor or the deacons or the charter members? No, my friends, I'll tell you who takes a personal interest in the longevity and the strength and perpetuity of his church, and that's the owner. That's the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will build my church. Now, I'm interested in the church growing, but the first thing that I can't do in that process is I can't make the stones alive. I can't quicken God's children, God's elect. You know, like I said earlier, this building is constructed of living stones. Have you ever seen one of those? I know we like to have pet rocks, you know, and like to name rocks. I mean, there are people who do things like that. But the fact is, rocks are not alive. <laughs> rocks are inanimate objects. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he takes the hard and stony heart and he tenders it, he quickens it, he puts his spirit in the heart of one of his elect. At that moment, that stone is made alive. They are lively stones. And he uses them now to place them into this structure as he is building his church in the world. And what is the foundation on which the church is built? It is the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, come to this earth to save his people from their sins. That is the bedrock truth. So the church is built on a truth, on a revealed truth. And may I say that church, which is made up of God's born-again children who've been brought to see and understand that truth, they are built up on that foundation. 
And it says, they're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, anyone that's experienced in building will tell you that in order to keep all of the angles square and everything precise, it's important to lay the cornerstone and to measure everything else in juxtaposition to that cornerstone. And if the foundation of the New Testament church is the revealed truth that the man Jesus is more than a man, he's God, a very God, come in the flesh to save his people from their sins, Jesus Christ himself is the measuring point. He is the one that we're to gauge whether we're doing church, as the saying is, or whether we're functioning as he intended for us to function. You see, he's the most important stone. Not only does the cornerstone provide a point of reference for getting your angles square, but the cornerstone was originally the first rock that was laid, you know. I know today the cornerstone will be placed in a, in a layer of bricks somewhat, you know, near the corner, but it's, it's more of a symbolic cornerstone. But back in the day, a cornerstone was that first stone that was laid and everything else was measured by it. And it was crucial to the stability of that structure. So what is the church supposed to be? Well, it is God's building project in this earth. Now, if it's God's building project, the real question isn't, do you like the church or do you approve of the way that they do things? The real question is, what does he think about it? It's his project in the earth. And in a world where architecture was an art form, I want to tell you, there's nothing more beautiful and precise than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is built on the foundation of revealed truth. Jesus Christ himself is the point of measurement. The building materials are the living stones that God has quickened by his grace. And I believe God has many children in this world. And I want to see those stones added to the church. I want to see this holy temple grow and continue to progress. Because until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, my beloved, may I say the church is the most important organization in this world. And then notice the special features of this church in the passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It is growing. That is, there should be something dynamic involved in the church. And it's easy to get stuck in a rut, isn't it? Like I said, it's easy to come to church and not to give any thought ahead of time to what we're doing here, and maybe we haven't been thinking about the hymns. The prayer, you know, it's, is not really making a connection, and the sermon certainly is not very well thought out. But I want to tell you, my beloved, what we want to see is not just business as usual in the church. We want to see a gathering when we come together in which each of us are aware of the significance of this moment, of what it is supposed to be, and we are seeking to function as the Lord has laid out in his word for us to function. And notice it says the purpose of the church in verse 22, we are builded together for a habitation of God. This is supposed to be God's dwelling place. Now, where does God live? We know according to Isaiah 57, 15, the high and lofty one inhabits eternity. But I'll tell you another place he inhabits. He inhabits the praises of his people. Psalm 65, I'll have to find the verse, but it says, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. God dwells in the presence of his people who are praising and worshiping him. 
And the church is built together for a habitation of God. This is where God lives. This is the house of God through the Spirit. Now, we're not talking about a physical manifestation, but we are talking about a spiritual presence. And through the Holy Spirit, may I say, God inhabits the church. So the church is a building. Let's look at the next metaphor in the book of Ephesians. And we turn forward to Ephesians chapter 5. The church is not only compared to God's building, but it's compared to the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You see, a husband is to love his bride in the same way that Christ loves his bride, the church. And he goes on to say that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, so ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So it's a very practical lesson on how husbands are to sacrifice and be committed to their wives. The apostle is speaking in mysterious terms here. Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And the point is that our marriages are to be visible examples or illustrations of the marital union that exists between Christ and the church. Just as the church is to submit to Christ, so are wives to submit to their husbands. And just as Christ loves the church, so are husbands to love their wives with a sacrificial, committed love. But the point that I make today is that the church is compared to Christ's bride. Now, it's God's building. It's Christ's bride. Like a building, the church is God's special and personal project in the earth. And like a bride, the church exists in a love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's an important point. What does it mean to be a church? It means that we are in love with the Savior. Peter says it like this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Unto you therefore that believe, he is precious. I want to ask you today, is Jesus Christ precious to you? Now, he's not precious to everybody. Peter goes on to say, but unto them that are disobedient, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They trip up over him. They're offended by Jesus. You know, we can look at our culture today and see many people who are offended by Jesus Christ. In fact, they've banned his name from the public square. Don't pray in the name of Jesus. Don't mention the name of Jesus. In fact, when an athlete gives glory to God or to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on television, the announcer and the, you can tell the producers are very nervous and they quickly cut away from it because that is a name that is taboo in modern culture. The secular world does not deem Christ as being valuable and precious. And I'll tell you, the church does. Unto you that believe, he is precious. And I think that's the real question, not do you understand all the nuances of theology but the most basic question is, do you love Jesus? Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? What do you think about Jesus? Is his name sweet in your ears? As we sang this morning, 
Oh, how I love Jesus. Can you sing that and really mean it? Well, you see, the church is Christ's bride. And just as a husband-wife relationship is a love relationship, so the church is to maintain its first love for the Savior of sinners. In Ephesians 3, the apostle prays for the church at Ephesus. I pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, not literally. We know he already dwells literally in our hearts after we've been born again. Christ indwells the child of grace. But he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that is by testimony, that you would have a sense of Christ, that you would have an existential awareness of Christ's reality in your life. And then he says, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. For what is Paul praying in Ephesians 3? He's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. They would comprehend the love of Christ. My friends, may I say, the more we realize how much he loved us, the more that will kindle our responsive love, our reciprocal love for him. Hymn writer said it real poignantly when he said, kindle a flame of sacred love in our hearts, and that will kindle ours. When the dry embers of my devotion are ignited by the fire from the altar of heaven, love flames up, my friends, toward the Savior. And then I can sing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds instead of yawning my way through that song, and I can really mean it. How sweet it sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows and heals his wounds and drives away his fears. Is there anyone here today, my friends, who feels pressured and stressed under the burdens of life? You know, we're living in stressful times, aren't we? Our world is in a bad shape. It seems that evil and seducers are waxing worse and worse. There's deception on every hand. And to hear that lovely name of Jesus Christ in the proclamation of the gospel, in the hymns of our faith, and to be reminded of who he is and what he's done, oh my beloved, it's like a love affair, isn't it? The church is the bride of Christ. Like a building, we are God's special project in the earth. Like a bride, the church exists in a love relationship with the Savior. And then turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Listen to verse 22. It says that God the Father has put all things under Christ's feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The church is God's building. The church in Ephesians is compared to Christ's bride. The church in the book of Ephesians is Christ's body. Now we see this metaphor again in the fourth chapter. In verse 11, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the gifts that the ascended Christ has given to the church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till now how long will we need these gifts in the church, these preaching gifts, until we all come in the unity of the faith. Now, that's the objective. It's where every Christian believes the same thing. Now, does that happen today? 
Is every one of God's children, does every believer, professed believer, agree on the Bible today? No, my friends, in fact, there are ideas aplenty out there. There are many different theological positions. You know, there's liberal theology, there's Arminian theology, there's Calvinistic theology, there is Wesleyan theology, there is uh, black liberation theology, there is feminist theology. There are so many different ideas. And without making any judgment as to whether the people that hold these various ideas are all children of God or not, I certainly don't know that. I do want to say that there is not unity in the faith. Now, that's one of the big criticisms that folks like many of the Roman Catholics and many of the secular people make against Protestant and Baptist churches, is they say there are so many different denominations. You know, at least we have some unity, and I would question whether that's true or not, you know. Organizational unity, you know, is not real unity. You know, just because you have a board of directors that dictate how everything is to function doesn't mean that the common people are all of one mind. But anyway, be that as it may, they say there are so many different Christian denominations. Well, I'm telling you, we're more united than is apparent. I mean, true Christians all believe in the Trinity. All professing true Christian, orthodox, historic Christianity believes in the triune God. They believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They believe in the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture. These are basic Christian tenets. They believe in the bodily resurrection at the last day. They believe in the reality of a heavenly existence for the righteous and the reality of hell for the unregenerate and the non-elect. There's greater unanimity. There's greater oneness of mind in Christian circles than appears on the surface. But I know that we that we are splintered. And I do look forward to the day when we will all say worthy is the lamb that was slain and there will be no focus on man. One day we will all come to the unity of the faith. Until that happens, the preaching gifts have been given to the church so that more and more people will be of one mind and think alike until we all come in the unity of the faith. Now the faith is the body of revealed truth. It's the apostolic doctrine, and preaching exists to promote unity. And notice unity is not organizational unity, and true unity is not ecumenical unity. True unity is a unity in the truth, in the faith. Finally, be ye all of one mind, says the apostle. I want you to think alike. Now, we're not going to think alike on everything, but I think on the essentials of the faith, on the core truths that we believe, we ought to be in agreement. And that's what a local church is. Do we all agree that man is totally depraved? I hope we do. Do we all agree that God before time chose a people in Christ through his sovereign election? I hope we do. Do we agree that Jesus came in the fullness of the time to save that very people, a particular redemption, and he actually accomplished it? He's an actual savior. I hope we agree on that. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit is dispatched from heaven in accordance with the covenant of grace before the world began to everyone that God loved and Christ redeemed and he calls them and quickens them through a divine effectual operation of grace in the heart so that they're brought from darkness to light, from death to life. I hope we agree in the effectual call. And do we agree, my friends, that all that God loved and Christ redeemed in the Spirit calls will be preserved in grace, secure in the love of God 
so that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ. And finally, every last one of them will end up in heaven singing hosannas to the Lamb. I hope we agree in that. Indeed, my friends, there's unity, or there should be, and preaching is intended not to divide people, but to promote the unity of the faith. Now, it will divide unbelievers from believers. There may be somebody that gets mad when you preach sovereign election or that Jesus died for a definite and special, not general and vague group of people. But you see, my friends, these are the things that define the New Testament church. We're a gospel church, and that's the only gospel I know of is the gospel of free and sovereign grace. So the church is a body. And Paul says in Ephesians, again, chapter 4, that these gifts have been given till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. So we're growing like a body. The word perfect means mature. Unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro. You know, one of the things about a little child is they're not very discerning. They're easily influenced. And of course, uh, predators have used that feature in children that they're naive. And they're non-discriminating to uh, coax them and to allure them into dangerous situations. May I say, dear friends, that little children are precious, but they need to be protected until they develop the wisdom to think on their own, to be discerning, to discriminate between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error. That's why, may I say, some of these programs that are being implemented in public education and in popular culture today are aimed at the children. If they can convince children early on, if they can take those little minds that are so malleable and permeable, and they can indoctrinate them on leftist ideology, if they can promote their philosophies early on in life, then I suggest, dear friends, they're just recruiting new members for their cause by doing so. Well, the apostle says we're not to be spiritually little children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, we ought to, everything we hear, we ought to think about it, not just accept it. Even from this pulpit, I encourage you to be Bereans, my friends who received the word with all readiness of mind. Now, they didn't come suspicious. They were ready to hear it, but then they tested what they heard. They were very deliberate about it. They received the word with all readiness of mind, and then they went home and searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Indeed, in the operation of the church, and when you listen to the news, we shouldn't see a, you know, a, a ghost behind every tree and a, a burglar behind every closet. We shouldn't be suspicious or paranoid. There's a difference in being discerning and being paranoid or suspicious. No, my friends, we ought to, like Paul says, prove all things and then hold fast to that which is good. So I'm willing to listen to ideas, and I'm not afraid of ideas. So you see, that's one of the features of divine truth. Truth does not fear exposure, and truth does not fear being tested. So I want to listen to what people have to say, but then I want to screen it all through the grid of Holy Scripture. Like an archaeologist. You ever seen an archaeologist? He builds his little frame and puts his screen on the bottom. Then he'll take a shovel full of dirt and put it on the screen. Then he shakes 
the frame and you know the dirt falls through and the artifacts stay on top. Well, we ought to sift everything we hear and think and see, everything, every idea to which we're exposed in this world through the sieve of Holy Scripture of God's Word. And let God be true and every man a liar. Whatever's consistent with the principles of this book are to be kept and whatever is contrary to the teaching of God's word should be discarded. That's what he means. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirit, test them to see whether they're of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus is the Christ is of God, but every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. You see, that's a call to discernment. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. That's a call to discernment. Proverbs says, the simple believe every word, but a prudent man looks well to his going. What do you think that proverb means? The simple believe every word? It means they're gullible. They're impressionable. Everything they hear. If somebody can put a sentence together in an articulate way, and they're dressed nicely, and their hair is nicely combed, and they have a smooth voice, the, you know, the credulous, the simple just... Say, okay, I think I'll believe it. <laughs> but the prudent man looks well to his going. So the purpose of preaching is to bring us to a perfect man, a mature person, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There are ideas of plenty out here blowing like gale force winds through our lives. And he says, don't be tossed by them by the slight of men Notice there's a deceptive element involved here and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Do you believe there are evil people in this world who want to steal people's minds and confuse them? Well, this verse makes no sense if that's not the case. I know we've heard about conspiracy theories to the point that we don't even like to think that there's such a thing. But I'll tell you, there is a devil in this world and he's the ultimate conspirator. I do believe, my friends, there are evil men in this world who want to try to influence and shape culture. It's, you know, the intellectual elites who are trying to herd the public for their own benefit, for the sake of power and influence and for the sake of profit and for their own greed. I do believe that there are social engineers in this world, the intelligentsia, who are attempting to shape public policy, and to change the way people think about gender, about marriage, about what a family is, about the uh, principles of government on which this nation was founded, for, about Christian truth and doctrine, about the word of God. You know, ultimately it's all a conspiracy against the glory of God, the government of God. Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. What we're seeing in our world around us is this cosmic struggle between good and evil being played out in the theater of real human history, according to Psalm 2. So the church is compared to a building, a bride, and a body. And like a body derives its life from the head, the church derives its vitality from the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 says, from whom the whole body, I'm in Ephesians 4, 16. He says, but speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we may grow up into him in all things. Now, what do you want to see in your body? You want to see it grow, prosper, 
mature, develop. He says the church is growing up into the head. And who is the head of the church? It's not the pastor. It's not the oldest member. It's not the deacons. Who is the head of the church? You say, our headquarters is in such and such city. I'm telling you, the true church has a headquarters, not on this earth, but in heaven, where the head is. Who's the head of the church? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the CEO. Now, I I hate to use that language because so many people think of the church as a business. The church is not a business. It's a building. It's a body. It's a bride. Not a business. This isn't big business in which we're worried about our budget. Now, of course, you've got to have a budget. I mean, you've got to have the people giving and the deacon brethren to distribute that. But that's not the goal here, is to make money and to gain power and influence. The goal is to please the head. The goal is to showcase the architectural genius of our builder. The goal, my friends, is to have a fruitful and fulfilling love relationship with our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is our primary goal is we exist for him. We play for an audience of one. And you say, well, (laughs) you mean you're coming to perform not for public accolades so that you can get on the front page of the paper and everybody will say, what a great church. You're coming just to perform for your heavenly husband? You're coming to please Him. You're coming to remember Him. You're coming to promote His ideas. May I say that's exactly the purpose of the church. The church is like a body. And like a body, the church consists of many parts and systems. You know, I think about my physical body. I have a skeletal system. It's a good thing I do or I couldn't stand here. I'd be like a Raggedy Ann doll, you know. She doesn't have a skeleton. So I have a skeletal system, I have a respiratory system. That's a good thing I've got that. And the respiratory system oxygenates through the circulatory system, the rest of my body. And then I have a central nervous system, which sends impulses from my body to my brain, from my eyes and my ears. You know, I can think about them, it translates them and interprets them, and then I know how to respond physically as a result of the impulses it's in. You know, the human body is a really amazing creation of God. Man's never made a machine as complex and yet as precise as the human body. And it functions together. Again, I said my respiratory oxygenates my circulatory system. The blood carries the oxygen from my respiratory system to the different cells in the body so that those cells function like little computers. Amazing. As microbiology has, uh, and the electron microscope has been developed, it has uh, opened up entire new vistas for the fearfully and wonderfully way that our bodies are made. And it's just mind-boggling. The DNA, the double helix molecule, and each strand, you know, is composed of amino acids, and it's just amazing how it all functions so fluidly and interconnectedly. It is really a stroke of genius that man was made in the image of God. And as we think about not only on the macro level of our world, but even on the micro level, how intricate everything is. 
And then we think how our bodies are made to interact with God's creation in order to bring glory to the creator. May I say the church is like a body. It has so many different parts and systems in it, but yet through his strength, the church represents him like his body to the watching world. Now, where is Christ's physical body today? It's been glorified and it's in heaven, right? That body was pierced on the cross and nailed to the cross and but that body which was broken for me was resurrected so that when Jesus appeared to the disciples he said handle me a spirit a phantom does not have flesh and bones like you see me have but yet that body could pass through walls it was a glorified body it's really hard for me to comprehend but it's the truth the man Christ Jesus is in heaven today now he's still fully God but he's still fully man he's a glorified man But here's the point. The world cannot see the body of Jesus in heaven. We can't even see it. Where do we see the body of Christ? We see it in his church. The church is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And just as a body derives its life from its head, so you and I depend totally on Jesus. You know, I could live without my hand. I don't want to, but I could. I could live without a leg. I could probably live without a kidney. You know, I could live you know, with one lung. But I'll tell you, I couldn't live without my head. Could you? And so the church, my beloved, is totally dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my head, it's through my head, that's the control center. That's headquarters. And all of the signals come from my brain, from my head. That's where the sensory percent, most of my senses Smell, sight, hearing, taste, four of the five are in my head. And the other one is connected to the head's feeling, you know, the sense of touch. Because without a brain, I couldn't, there'd be no nerve sensations. So the head is critical. How much does the church need Jesus Christ? We need him like a building needs a foundation. We need him like a bride needs a husband. We need him like a body needs the head. The most important member of Bethel Church this morning is the head of this organization or this organism, living organism, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. And we're all about him, aren't we? We want to promote his glory. You see, each of these three images teaches about our relationship to Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what a church is supposed to be. That's what it was set up to be. Not a business, not an entertainment center. Not a political action committee. And you say, well, Brother Mike, those ideas are pretty archaic. They're outdated. There's not a lot of people are going to agree with that. Well, they're God's ideas. They came out of this book. The reason people don't agree with it is because they've abandoned this book and they start thinking their ideas are better than God's are. My friends, may I say, whether it seems to function properly or not, you know, whether it's pragmatic, whether it works, somebody says, well, your ideas of the church or why that you're so small and struggling like you are. Well, even if that's the case, may I say, the church is not supposed to be like the world. It's supposed to be different. And my desire is to function as a New Testament church in a way that's thoroughly biblical. I hope that's your desire as well, because I believe that it meets a need in the lives of God's children in this world that no other organization can meet. 
how would you like to be a part of an organization? And I hate even to use that word because, again, it's a little bit too secular, but how would you like to be a part of an organization that will never cease to exist and that has the creator of the universe as its CEO? I'm telling you, all earthly organizations will crumble and fall, but here's something that will never cease to exist. And you know what happens when one of our members passes off the scene? We transfer their letter to the, a larger congregation because the heavenly church, the triumphant church, the invisible church is of the same nature as the visible church. It's all about the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the object of worship in heaven. And it's a happy place. It's a united place where everybody agrees. There's unity. There's integrity. There's joy unspeakable and full of glory. I hope we get a little foretaste of that down here. The church of Christ.